sorry about that. <laughs> um, I don't know if you, uh, you, you know, we talked before about being the experience of thirst or hunger. I actually held back my particular story, which is uh, in year nine, uh, sorry, year 10, the school I was at would actually send a class of year teners off to run a farm for nine weeks. And so um, for nine weeks, you, uh, you get up early in the morning, you go for a run, then you come back and you'd have to do the cows, feed the cows, milk the cows, sorry, feed the pigs. Maybe it was, um, you'd uh, uh, bake the bread. It was one of the morning jobs. There's a whole range of jobs that you'd have to do. And, uh, and then across the day, you'd be maintaining the fences. You'd uh, go out and scrub lantana. There was all sorts of stuff. And uh, we just worked hard. And so we all end up really hungry. I mean, teenagers, you know what it's like to feed a teenager anyway. Um, but when you actually working hard as a teenager... So I think our, my breakfast was typically... I'm not a big guy. My breakfast was typically 12 to 14 wheat bix um, each morning. It was just crazy. Um, we basically... Everyone knew that you had about half a loaf of bread each <laughs> for lunch, and then I just dread to think how many cows died feeding us all across that time <laughs> in the evenings. Um, we were just hungry, ravenous. And yet, when Jesus is speaking these words to these people and he's offering drink and food, he's actually talking to something that's a whole new level of hunger, isn't he? I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to live in a community where... Um, to have one meal of rice last three days is just pretty normal. Or even just live with that uncertainty of where a next meal would come from. And yet if we just, to draw any sort of sense of the community that Jesus is living in in this passage, that's it. That sort of uncertainty of food and that sort of people who knew that sort of hunger, he says, look, I've got water, that means you won't have to drink, you know, you never go thirsty again. He, he can say to his disciples, he's hiked for an entire morning and he says to the disciples when they arrive with the food, no, I'm right, I'm fed. That's a very different world of promises. Um, it's speaking about a, a level of satisfaction that's just unimaginable to us. But that is the promise of this passage. That is what Jesus has on offer for us. So how about I pray and we'll have a look at um, what Jesus is talking about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to see that the drink and the food that is here in this passage that can sustain us for eternal life. We pray that we would see it and also that we grasp hold of it and we would discover this satisfaction, that we would discover this sustaining power that you have that meets our deepest needs. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just working our way through the passage... Um, Jesus starts off his journeying. He's been uh, travelling for an important reason, which is that he's been driven out of Judea because he's come, become popular, and he's driven into Samaria because he's tired. So from verse 1, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, and I have to stop at that point because... When he says that Jesus had to go, the Samaritans and the Jews, they didn't like each other. Um, and particularly the Jews saw the Samaritans as not really followers of God. And so the really faithful Jews would actually go to the trouble of crossing across the Jordan River, going up the other side and then crossing back again to get to Galilee, rather than pass through the territory of the Samaritans. So when John says he had to go through that area, that's not strictly true. 
Well, unless there's some sort of divine appointment that's being played out here, that there's a sort of a necessity for this conversation to happen. Because certainly it's a significant town, isn't it? It's connected to Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel. Verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. Which is interesting. Because remember, the respectable Jewish leader, Nicodemus, came at night. Remember, he, he had good reputation in his community, but therefore he turns up to Jesus at night, and we even explored the possibility, was that suggesting it was night because he didn't really know the truth of who God was? In comparison, this woman arrives, and she's talking to Jesus in the middle of the day, in broad daylight. And yet she's full of shame. First of all, um, she's a Samaritan, and this Samar- Samaria, it's the... The area that the northern tribe of Israel was from, but they'd been sent into exile because they disobeyed God and they'd never been brought back. And so what ended up in that region was a sort of a mix of cultures that claimed to follow the God of Israel, Yahweh, but they really weren't strictly faithful to him. That's why the Jews weren't really keen about him. But it's not just a Samaritan, it's a Samaritan woman. I mean, the Jewish men had a prayer where they thanked God first that they were born a Jew and then second that they weren't born woman because that was just the level of disrespect they had, the, the level of um, dishonour in their community towards women. So it's no wonder in verse 7 she reacts the way she does. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There's a real sense of shame for this woman. Uh, It was interesting, a week ago I went to a seminar on um, poverty and and how to share the gospel in poorer communities. And the first thing they got us to do was to define poverty. Because being sort of middle class, my default assumptions about what a poverty is, it's about a lack of stuff. You know, you don't have enough money, you don't have enough things um, and that maybe you don't have enough opportunities and they said look if you talk to people who are in long-term poverty in in housing commission developments where it's multi-generations that have been poor their description of poverty isn't so much about a lack of stuff it's about shame it's about a sense of alienation and exclusion that you the way that people see you and perceive you as something less That seems to be how this woman is speaking. She can't really imagine that this Jewish man would bother to talk to her, let alone to ask her for a drink. But he does, uh, because he has something to offer her. Uh, It seems to be deliberately pushing the conversation that way. And what he offers her is living water. Now, I hope you're learning that as you work through John, whenever these sorts of vivid words in sort of metaphors jesus pops out it's worth going to the old testament to see the background that might explain why he's using the word so in this case um, living water you do a search uh, in your old testament and you find a few different references you go to the book of leviticus can we get that up on the screen Um, and in leviticus the language of living water has to do with purifying in the english translation it's pure pure water but the the, uh, original it's um living so verse 13 when a man is cleansed from his discharge he is 
to count off seven days for his ceremonial cleansing. He must wash his clothes and bathe himself with fresh water, or literally living water, and he will be clean. So living water is cleansing. Uh, Then you also find in Jeremiah 2, God is the source of living water. And the problem is that the people keep abandoning him. Verse 13, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So living water purifies. God is the source. But lastly, living water is going to flow from Jerusalem. This is the promise in Zechariah 14. Um, It's a picture of God's promised future when God will rule the world and from Jerusalem this water is going to flow out to all the nations. So uh, verse 8, on that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the east of the Dead Sea, half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter and the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name the only name. Now, with that background in mind, it actually makes a little more sense why Jesus does what he does in this conversation. Because no sooner has he offered the living water and this woman says, yeah, I'm in, then he seems to change topic by by asking her to bring her husband. But he knows full well that she isn't currently married. Verse 15. The woman said to her, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Jesus exposes her need for purifying, for cleansing. Now you can tell she's embarrassed because she changes the topic. But even then, there's sort of hints of Zachariah's prophecy. The thought that, that this water, living water is going to flow out from Jerusalem, from the Jews, out to the rest of the world and change the way they relate to God. So have a look at verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that this place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, from Jerusalem. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. And I don't know if you're picking it up, but there's actually a bit of a deja vu moment going on here. Because remember, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about needing the Spirit and about being exposed by the truth. And there's a few parallels because Jesus also shamed Nicodemus. He, remember, he exposed Nicodemus's lack of knowledge of heaven and heavenly realities. And now Jesus is shaming this woman by exposing her sin and her need for purifying. There's a whole lot of similarities between these two conversations, but what's really different is how she responds. Not only does she sort of go, wow, this must be the Messiah, but she rushes off and tells everyone about it. Verse 28, uh, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? 
and they came out of the town and made their way toward him. There's just all this great stuff going on in this passage. So, uh, first of all, Jesus is just amazing, isn't he? I mean, a little bit intimidating because he knows all about this woman. He's actually leading the conversation, full knowledge of what's going on in her life. He knows what happens in a bedroom. But also, he's, he's blunt and generous. So he's blunt. He doesn't pull back from quite an awkward topic. But he's generous because the very reason he's going there is to invite her to have eternal life. And then the other amazing thing is that when he exposes her shame, she actually rushes off and exposes her shame to others. It seems like Jesus has dealt with her shame, has somehow, she's found forgiveness, and so now she's willing to actually mention it. In verse 29, she goes and tells people that Jesus knew everything she ever did. I mean, how do you mention that to someone without them following up with, oh, so what do you mean by that? But she seems to be happy to go there. She's willing for the conversation to expose her shame because she's so amazed at Jesus. It's what we really need when we discover shame. Uh, the other thing I really appreciated about this seminar on uh, helping those in, who are poor know Jesus was it really emphasised that if you get the diagnosis right, if you understand poverty right, then you're actually better equipped to, to provide a solution. Uh, the guy who was doing the seminar, he, he was from a rough background. He was a druggy, prison. Um, he really had, knew all the systems and he, he said something really surprising because he'd benefited from all these sort of um, community kitchens that churches had run. And yet he said, look, if I had my way, I'd shut down most of them. Most churches, mercy ministries, they are just a waste of time because if you're a druggy, you know just how to work the system. They're not actually doing anything which sounds a bit radical, but what he was saying was, if the real poverty problem is shame, then what you really need is someone who's going to come and deal with the shame. And you do that by sharing the gospel. You do that by not just providing a meal once off, but actually by building a relationship where you get to share the gospel with that person. They come to follow Jesus. They grow into maturity as a Christian so that they then invite others to know Jesus. That's the real work. And he says sometimes we just get a, we feel like we've dealt with poverty by giving a few dollars when actually it's that deeper investment that's needed. That's what Jesus seems to be doing in this woman's life. He's ending her shame. He's, he's speaking the gospel, this living water that washes away shame and offers eternal life. And yet there's even more on offer. So yes, eternal life ends your thirst, but then bringing people back to God apparently ends hunger. That's what I really find surprising. So you see what happens. The disciples return, they've got their bags of McDonald's in their hands, and yet Jesus seems to have already been fed. Verse 31. Uh, Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. His disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? turns out that the food is God's work. It's, it's healing the world. That is what Jesus is satisfied by. But notice also that he invites the disciples to be part of the same work. Verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then he has this sort of metaphor of being involved in the harvest. I think the key verse is verse 38. Um, I sent you to reap 
what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. They don't realise the, the, the satisfaction of sharing the gospel that they're being invited into. And actually what Jesus says there, we, we actually saw at the start of the chapter, Jesus was preaching, but who was baptising the people that came to him? was the disciples that they've been part of this amazing work of seeing people return in their relationship to god this deeply satisfying work i I remember visiting one church um i was involved in a a, a mission team that was going out to share the gospel with them Um, but it was the week after tali was born and so uh, we were a mess you know i was back and forwards looking after my wife as first priority that's what I was told to do and so in reality I was, I was only involved in so many events and not very well and the main thing I got to do that week was I got to preach the Sunday night and in God's mercy somebody came to trust in Jesus that night and that was brilliant and I was excited but you know what I really realized I had done so little to be reaping such a huge reward like it was an absolute thrill to me and yet the reality was a bunch of other people had been chatting to him in the week someone else had invited him that night let's be honest god had been working in his life for so long and in so many different ways to see him come to that point i really was in, in on the end game and yet here i was and it was just a thrilling night for me and and i do want you to notice it's not just the person with a theology degree who gets to invite people to know jesus yes he says that to the 12 but it's the samaritan woman here who does all the evangelism verse 39 many of the samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony he told me everything i did so when the samaritans came to him they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days this is just great this woman who's known such shame suddenly she's able to bring hope into people's lives and they're grateful but do notice what makes the difference in the end it's not her story that seals the deal sometimes i think we need feel we've got to have some amazing testimony about how we became a christian and what god's done in our lives what nails it for these people is meeting jesus and his words have a look at verse 41 and because of his words many more became believers they said to the woman we no longer believe just because of what you said now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world it's one of those uh, important lessons i, I i've uh, really enjoyed reading testimonies from people who've come from muslim backgrounds and they've come to follow jesus I don't know if you've read the books. One that stuck out in my mind was um, I Dared to Call Him Father. And it's really interesting. Jesus appears to this woman in a vision, in a dream one night. That's how she gets called to follow Jesus. And I was talking with a friend from Pakistan. He worked as a missionary there for a while. And he said, yeah, that actually happens more than you'd expect, that, that God seems to work a lot through visions and dreams to call people to follow Jesus. He said, but it's interesting because the people who stick at it they're the ones who as soon as they've been called by jesus they want to get the bible they want to know what he says and they really dig deep into the bible they're the ones that carry on because that's where people are really grounded in their faith that's the real source of confidence in jesus we'll look at it more next week it's in his words so you don't have to have an impressive testimony you just need to point people to jesus and let his word work so on offer in this passage today is drink and food living water 
eternal life that, that means you never have to thirst again. And then the, the satisfying food of sharing in the harvest, of telling people about Jesus. What does that mean for us? Well, it means we need to drink and eat. <laughs> so can I encourage you, if you haven't already, please drink. Um, please let Jesus deal with your shame. Because we all have it. We all know we're not the people we should be. Um, we all know we don't meet the standard. Look, we don't meet the standard we set for ourselves, let alone the standard that God has for our lives. We all know the shame of sin. We all know we need forgiveness. Jesus is offering that cleansing. Uh, but also eat. And I really wanted to emphasize this for us. There is a, a satisfying work that we can be involved in, and that is sharing the gospel with people. It's letting that shape our lives. We're all sort of different life circumstances involved in different things, but there is this deep satisfaction in letting our lives be shaped to the purpose of making Jesus famous. We can do it in different ways. We can, we can use our work to, to fund mission. We can uh, shape our life so we're involved in Bible classes and teaching others. All sorts of things that we can do. Uh, but it, it really has to speak against what we're told by our society. We're, we're given all these alternatives that we can work for. So work. You know, uh, there's this thought that if, if you work hard and you make a go of it, somehow that's going to be your ultimate life satisfaction. But it, it doesn't work out does it um, i've just come from victoria point and i'm so aware that I, I, met, I said you know 10 years after you retire everyone forgot forgets you and it was this yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this real sense that for all our hard work it disappears too quickly um or you can throw your life into your kids and that might work out but i can also point you to heaps of stories where it doesn't there are lots of good things that God has made that were given to us to enjoy, but if they become the ultimate thing, and I'm using Tim Keller's language here, if they become the ultimate goal of our lives, they are not built to make, take the weight. And we will crush them and they will crush us. But here is satisfaction. Here is a food that lasts, and that is to live for the glory of Jesus and to invite others to know him. Uh, there's a great story... Uh, uh, of a, a CEO of Shell. So Shell's a big oil company in England um, and he was a Christian and he was good at his job. So he, he travelled the world running this multinational company, um, made huge dollars. Um, but when he came home, every time he got into the car, it was an old bomb. <laughs> he just he, he had the most minimal car you could imagine. And eventually his uh, his workmates they got really frustrated because every time they had an international visit they had to get into this little bomb of a car and so while he was away on a trip one time they decided to buy him a replacement but he was actually a bit narked that they'd done that he was a bit annoyed because his priority his life purpose was not to have all the mod cons to to, to earn the money to to have the stuff his delight was seeing people know Jesus. That's what he used his money for. He used it to fund missions. He, he shaped his work week so that he could be involved in sharing the gospel because he was this person whose, whose satisfaction was in pointing people to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to discover this satisfaction as we now share in the Lord's Supper together and we remember that how Jesus has given his life for us. May this be news that we want others to share. 
And we pray, especially as a church plant that uh, wants others to know Jesus and we're having these opportunities um, and continue to be offered opportunities, that we would know how to take them and take them well so that we might share Christ and be involved in, and discover this satisfaction of telling people about Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. So as I said, we're going to have Lord's Supper.